electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. They always sneak it all in. Uh, Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. And it's from reopening to reclosing this afternoon. Apple just announced it'll reclose stores in some states as cases spike. The whole market is selling off on that news. Is it a preview of more to come? We'll ask. Plus, follow the yellow brick road. That's Morgan Stanley's advice to investors as the firm gets even more bullish on the stock market. The man behind the call joins us to break it down. And the math of staying open. We'll speak with a chef who has restaurants across the country who opened his doors as lockdowns ended, crunched the numbers, and closed them back up. What his story could tell us about the pace of the recovery. But we do begin with today's markets and this action, Dom Chu, in the last hour. Open, close, bull, bear, whatever it is happening right now, all of it's playing out in a way that's at least less volatile than you would think for the markets overall. We have seen fractional gains and fractional losses. As Kelly alluded to, that Apple News did send stocks lower across the board. But as you can see here, we're only off about one quarter of one percent at this stage for the Dow Industrials, 54 points. The S&P just about flat at this stage. And the Nasdaq Composite still, even with a big winning at Apple, up about one quarter of one percent. Speaking of volatility, one measure of it is something called the CBOE Volatility Index. We don't talk about it often, but just to give you an idea, remember, during the COVID pandemic highs, we got above about 85 here. 44 is what we saw last Thursday during the market sell-off, and we are now just about 32. What it basically tells you is even on a day when derivatives contracts are expiring and we could see volatility, it's holding fairly steady, at least for now. We'll see if that trend continues. And then, of course, the stock of the day so far on the heels of that news, Apple shares down about one-third of 1% at one point. They did lose about one and a third percent of their value intraday just because of those headlines. But as you can see here, we are not far away from record highs at this stage. And Apple has been on a steady climb ever since those COVID-19 lows. But that intraday move, you can see there, Kelly, very noticeable. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thanks very much. And for more on the spike in COVID cases reported across multiple states, let's get to Meg Terrell, who has the latest count for us. Meg? Hey, Kelly. Well, these states in which Apple is closing those stores really jive with some of the concerning trends we're seeing across the South and the West. If you look at the case numbers in states like Arizona, Florida, Texas, California, they all hit new highs yesterday or today in the number of daily cases they've added. Arizona here up to 2,500. Um, California added more than 4,000 yesterday, Texas adding more than 3,500, and Florida just reporting a second new high today. Uh, Now it's up to 3,800. So folks are also worried about what this will do to the hospital capacity in these states. Evercore ISI Uh, and the COVID uh, exit project, which is a great uh, tracking website, looking at the ICU capacity um, in these states. Arizona, they say, only has a quarter of their capacity. Uh, California, a third. Florida, a quarter. Texas, about a third, uh, saying that this is low capacity. Florida's uh, governor and some of the health officials from around that state, though, arguing these don't tell the whole story, and they do have surge capacity Uh, a lot of excess ability to treat people in that state if they need it. Uh, But the hotspots, the areas
areas where we're seeing fastest growth around the country, they're in those states as well. Phoenix is seeing its case doubling time now down to 12 days. Tampa, Orlando, San Antonio, and Austin all seeing the fastest case growth, according to Evercore SI, in the country right now, Kelly. Meg, how long do you expect this surge, um, sort of quote unquote, to last across a lot of these states? What are people saying about that? And it, it is interesting to see that the Latino population seems especially at risk here, not only in terms of the severity of the disease, but uh, we've seen a lot of construction sites, uh, situations like that in a lot of these warmer states where these are becoming hotbeds. And of course, that's also important economic activity. So I'm curious how that's all going to play into the response here. Yeah, you know, a lot of these cases being detected among people who have to keep going to work and to work in places where they are packed closely together. Uh, so it is incredibly concerning. And in terms of how long this could continue to go on, you know, it depends on how states and local governments uh, react to this. Um, you know, a lot of the governments are talking about how these cases are often in younger people. In Texas, they were talking about people crowding at bars. In Florida, they were just mentioning that 62% of the new cases last week were in people under 45 and saying that uh, younger people might not be practicing their social distancing as much. So we're going to have to see how these local governments respond in terms of trying to mandate masks or other uh, other things. But right now we're seeing the corporate community like Apple taking steps where perhaps the local governments are not yet. Yeah, no, we'll have much more uh, on that right now. Meg, we appreciate it. Meg Terrell with the very latest uh, we, uh, on that story for us. So as I mentioned, this Apple news, is it exactly what investors had been fearing, that parts of the economy will begin to shut down again? Let's bring in Jason Ware, Chief Investment Officer at Albion Financial Group, and Randall Ely, who is President and Chief Investment Officer at Edgar Lomax, to talk more about this. And it's great to have you guys both here. Jason, albeit this it just happened, we're all you know trying to catch up uh, with the news, the market reaction, while it was noticeable, has been relatively muted. What does that tell you? Hi, Kelly. Great to be with you. You know, I think the market's been on edge ever since we've had a really strong rebound from the March lows. And, you know, a lot of that was um, really subject to uh, the economy reopening and policymakers, um, you know, coming at the market and the economy full force. And we've had both of those. So we had a nice snack back in the market. But I think after a 45 percent rally, over two and a half months, the market is rightly uh, taking a step back and pausing and saying, you know what, um, you know, the speed of the initial reopening has been great, but what's the pace and strength of the recovery going forward? And if we're going to have these kind of stop and start um, economic um, situations because of the virus, like Apple, you know, shutting down their stores in a couple of states, then that's something that investors are trying to digest and figure out what that means over the next few months. So to see a little bit of volatility around those headlines, I think, like that are, is to be expected. Randall, the stocks that you like, can they do well no matter how halting uh, this reopening and, and to some extent this reclosing is? Uh, yes. The key thing is to have a long-term view and patience which has always been probably the most difficult thing for investors. Uh, I think when it comes to the Apple news, though, that uh, you know, people are feeling for the most part that you know, we've seen this movie before. Uh, the, the, the whole concept of what's happening to us with this COVID coronavirus is scary, but every day is up, it's down, and to some degree until uh, we see something that's a massive move, either a great improvement or great uh, deterioration in the numbers of people uh, getting this. I think the, the markets are beginning to, to take the news with some degree of frame salt. Interesting. Randall, why is that? I mean, what's different this time, given that, you know, the virus is still spreading as much as it ever did? And so why is our familiarity taking the edge off of this? 
Yes, well, they've seen various companies, in particular Apple, they've seen them have to close, if I remember correctly, it was almost all the stores in China. Uh, they've seen them close, you know, quite a few of the operations here reopen, and yet they're still, they're operating profitably. So to some degree, uh, investors are beginning to realize that the well-run companies, particularly those that are providing services or products that we need or make life a lot easier, that those companies are still likely to earn profits. Absolutely fair. So, Jason, let me turn back to you. Apple is one of the names that typically comes up as the kind of company you like. You're big in tech. Um, also, some of the consumer winners, Home Depot, Costco and Disney. Are you concerned that this market will lose its way as we enter the back half of the year if the news flow on COVID doesn't get better? Yeah, I think that's the risk. That's the the key risk for the market looking out over the next six months is if uh, you know the path of the virus gets worse. Worse if in, if infection picks up in the country and, and we're not willing to uh, do what we did the first time around, which is bend the curve and make sure the healthcare system is not overwhelmed. I think that's a, a key risk for the market, and and we'll certainly see volatility and perhaps some downside if that's the result because we'll probably have to uh, make some hard decisions about um, uh, local economies. But I also think that you know policy support is important. And another risk to the outlook over the near term is what's Congress going to do? I think we know the Fed is committed to supporting financial markets and doing what they can for the economy. But Congress is a little bit more of a question mark. And and I think if they were to stop full support on the fiscal side or if we were to let unemployment insurance lapse at the end of July, that could create a big hole in the economy in the second half of the year. And I think markets would respond in kind to that kind of information. So the virus is going to dictate where we go, but also policy and, and the speed of the economic recovery will dictate that as well. And uh, Randall, finally, you think names like AT&T, Duke Energy and Pfizer can, can you know, do reasonably well in, even in that kind of environment? Uh, yes. And that's because in the long run, buying stocks is all about earnings. You know, we buy them because we expect that when we pay a dollar, that that company is going to earn some percentage on that dollar. And those earnings will come back to us in growing internal value, either book value or and dividends. All right. Gentlemen, it's great to have you both here. Randall Ely, Jason Ware, we appreciate it. Share your thoughts on the market this afternoon. Uh, the Nasdaq did now just turn positive. Dow's still down about 106. Coming up, there's more news on Apple. It's doubling down on its controversial decision to reject the email app Hey. Microsoft is now weighing in on the battle. And the EU says it will investigate the company's app store. We'll look at where Apple goes from here. Plus, Morgan Stanley says investors should follow the yellow brick road to a much higher stock market in the back half of the year. Head strategist Mike Wilson joins us to explain. And on this Juneteenth, the divided states of America, a look at one of the key issues for the African-American community as we count down to the election. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to The Exchange. It's a new mi- milestone for Microsoft today, the tech giant following in Apple's footsteps and becoming just the second public company ever to be valued at more than a trillion and a half dollars. It's up 25 percent this year. It's up 50 percent from its 52-week low. Now, Apple still holds the crown for market cap, and Apple is up a whopping 80 percent from its 52-week low. Still a major headline for Microsoft today, Apple up in the ranks of the trillion and a half club as well. And speaking of Apple, it recently announced it would be reclosing some stores due to new coronavirus infections. Let's get to Josh Lipton with all the details for us. Josh? So that's right, Kelly. So Apple just announcing that it's going to temporarily close some of those stores here in the U.S. due to these COVID-19 spikes. So starting tomorrow, that means 11 stores temporarily closing, Apple says, in four states. That's Florida, uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Arizona. That that does mean still over about 200 of its 271 stores in total in the U.S. do remain open. Though remember when we say open, a lot of those stores remain open just uh, in terms of curbside pickup. And if you can enter the store, uh, a a number of rules there too, Kelly. You have to wear a mask. If you don't have one, uh, one would be provided to you. The number of customers in those stores also limited due to social distancing guidelines Members, Apple did reopen these stores. It did, it did caution. It would always follow the data, always follow the guidance and direction of healthcare experts, and if warranted, would close some of these stores temporarily again, and it's done so here. Kelly, back to you. Josh, thank you, sir. Josh Lipton with the latest. And on top of those store closures, Apple is in an escalating fight with one of its prominent app store developers, and it's getting the attention of regulators both here and overseas. For more, I'm joined by Neelay Patel, editor-in-chief at The Verge and a CNBC contributor. Neelay, welcome. Thanks for having me. Can I ask you first about the store closures, which, again, we're not talking about a huge impact to Apple's business. I I simply wonder about it as could it be that that business is leading the next wave of closures, so to speak, that it's not going to be that we see, you know, states and communities shutting down per se, but maybe the companies themselves saying, you know, we've developed our own protocols now and this, you know, we're we're taking the lead on this. Yeah, I think most big companies, they've been thinking about this for three months uh, they have a responsibility to their employees. They have a responsibility to be seen as good social citizens. That's something most of the CEOs are taking very seriously right now. Uh, and I think the market's really looking for any signal of where the economy's going. And I think a, a company like Apple saying, you know what, we're not ready to put our employees at risk in this way, or we think conditions have changed and we're going to reevaluate that risk is a great signal for the market. Yeah, absolutely. So let's turn to talk about the other major issues for the company right now. And this email or this battle over the email app is super interesting, especially because I was surprised that Microsoft came out really pointed way about it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Apple's in a really hard place here. They've been saying to the investment community for, for years now that they are transitioning to be a services company. Their business isn't ever-growing iPhone sales or ever-growing hardware sales. Their business is really collecting more revenue from the massive installed base of uh, iPhones in the world. That strategy is at risk if they change the rules on when they get to collect money from their developers. So you've got this email app, which is called Hey. That's run by a very popular company that does very well. Its founders are wealthy. They do not want Hey to be massively successful. And they're willing to shut down their app in this fight. Apple usually isn't in that position. Apple usually controls the stakes in the narratives and they can control the players. So David Hanemeyer Hansen, the CTO of Basecamp, came on our podcast yesterday with Congressman David Cicilline, the chair of the House Antitrust Committee. And Congressman Cicilline told me very directly, he thinks Apple is being a monopolist. It's being a bully. He does not want small companies to be afraid uh, of the platform merchants. 
And he, he thinks there needs to be legislative action to control what he, he called the 30% cut that Apple takes in the App Store, highway robbery. Hmm. He said it was unconscionable. So that is a massive amount of pressure for Apple to face. And then on top of it, they're facing uh, an equivalent investigation in the EU. Right. But they can't bend that pressure very fast because they have pitched their revenue strategy as services. 100%. So any move they make might affect that services narrative. No, and we've talked about that before here, how you know when Apple's pivoting to services, keep in mind that 30% toll is generating a big piece of that growth. So all of that said, Neele, why is the stock basically at all-time highs today before it sold off on the store closings news? A trillion and a half market cap. I mean, there is no sign investors are concerned about any fundamental threats to its business model. No sign. You know, Apple, uh, to its credit, yesterday held, held firm. They, they put out another letter. They sent it to reporters and said, we're not letting your app in the store. If you want to change the way your app works, you want to add this button, you can be back in the store. That's fine. But we're, we're sticking with it. And I think until a regulator comes and says you have to change it, which is months from now, uh, I think Apple's safe. And I, I think really the issue for them is next week is their developers conference. And now their entire developers conference, their relationship to the community that makes the iPhone the iPhone, uh, is a little tainted by the sense that at any moment Apple might crush your business. They've got to handle that problem, but that's not yet a problem uh, for the revenue strategy until the regulators come and do something about it. Right. So let me ask you one final question on that front. I mean, what kind of remedies do you think could seriously come out of this? You know, the EU and the, and the U.S. are very different in how they think about these things. Uh, the congressman yesterday was very quick to remind me that Congress has, has many powers, but actually breaking up companies is not, is not one of them. Uh, passing rules about how companies can operate, they're a little constrained. I think you might see the EU uh, do things like mandate alternative app stores, mandate things like you can't sell your own apps in your own store. That, that's the kind of remedy we see the EU pursue uh, historically hilariously with Microsoft which is now asking for the scrutiny. Right. We've seen them pursue that kind, of, uh, that kind of remedy with Google. I think here in the U.S., uh, what Congressman Cicilline told me is he's looking at all of the digital platform uh, providers. He's saying competition on Facebook, Amazon, Google, Apple is not where it needs to be. And he wants all those CEOs to show up in Congress and testify. And then he does think there needs to be legislative action, but I think he wants to write a rule that hits them all, not a targeted remedy towards one company. Uh, right now, what's interesting is Google, Facebook, uh, Amazon, they're saying, okay, we, we, you know, we'll send our CEOs. We're, we're okay with that. Uh, Congressman Cicilline told me yesterday, Apple uh, so far has declined to commit to send Tim Cook. So I think there's a lot of pressure coming Apple's way to make Tim Cook testify. Neelay, great stuff as always. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Neelay Patel is editor-in-chief at The Verge. We've got a news alert on AMC. Let's go to Dom Chu for the details. Dom? All right, so the movie theater chain giant is going to require all guests that go to watch a movie in their facilities nationwide to wear a mask until further notice. Now, the reason why that is important, Kelly, is because it was just yesterday that AMC had outlined a reopening plan for its theaters nationwide starting on July 15th that would leave it up to the individual jurisdictions. If a state requires masks, then those theaters would require masks. If they did not, then guests did not have to necessarily wear a mask. That met with a huge amount of outcry just in the last 24 hours. As a result, AMC changing course, backing track, and saying that all guests going forward starting July 15th in its theaters nationwide will be required to wear a mask. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. Wow, that is a big reversal. This has been one of the biggest stories of the last day or so. Dom, we appreciate it. Thank you.
Dom Chu with the news alert there. Coming up, the reopening math. One Napa Valley restaurant owner opened his doors when the lockdowns ended, crunched the numbers, and decided to close down again. He'll join us with his story, his advice, and what the experience could tell us about the economic recovery. Plus, could a wave of delistings be coming to the New York Stock Exchange? We'll explain. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get to Sue Herrera for our CNBC News Update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. The World Health Organization warning the coronavirus pandemic is accelerating and that it has entered a, quote, new and dangerous phase, end quote. The WHO Director General saying more than 150,000 new cases were reported yesterday, the most in a single day so far. The Philadelphia Phillies reporting five players and three staff members have tested positive for the coronavirus in Clearwater, Florida. The team's spring training complex there has been closed indefinitely. And the NCAA expanding its ban on states with Confederate symbols from hosting championships. This after the Southeastern Conference commissioner said Mississippi must change its state flag or it might not be able to host SEC championship events. The Mississippi flag is currently the only state flag that contains the Confederate symbol. You are up to date, Kelly. I'll see you next hour. Back to you. All right, Sue, thanks very much. Now, a raft of companies could be at risk of being delisted from the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange. This because pandemic-related waivers allowing them to dodge some listing requirements expire in less than two weeks. Bob Bassani joins me now with that story. Bob? Hi, Kelly. You know, we've been talking a lot about Hertz. Uh, they got a, uh, they're in a bankruptcy procedure, but they got a delisting notice from the NYSC nine days ago. Now they're appealing that delisting notice and the stock's going to remain, remain listed until that matter is settled. But Hertz isn't the only one that's out there in danger of delisting here. Back in March and April, at the height of all the coronavirus worries, the NASDAQ and the NYSC both waived some of their listing requirements, allowing a lot of companies that would likely have been delisted or possibly delisted to simply remain trading. These waivers are now expiring on June 30th at both of the exchanges. So the NYSC temporarily, for example, waived its requirement related to average global market capitalization. There's also price requirement. Average closing price of a stock had to be above $1 over a 30-day period. That got waived here. There's currently over 90 companies that are non-compliant right now with the NYC's listing requirements, including J. Jill, for example, J.C. Penney, and many others. These companies, by the way, are not going to be automatically delisted, not going to be de delisted. Rather, on July 1st, the stock 
the, 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 the clock that had been frozen for several months before, Kelly, essentially is going to start running on these companies again. And so we're going to have to revisit them about whether they're still in violation of the listing requirements. Kelly? Yeah, it's fascinating. And more workers are returning to the floor of the NYSE these days, Bob. But without one of their colleagues, I was no. so saddened to hear of the passing of Rusty Hewitt. Yes, Rusty Hewitt was a, a beloved uh, participant in the floor. He was a, a designated market maker uh, for Citadel uh, for many years. Uh, Rusty then went upstairs, became a vice president, helped with clients uh, over at Citadel and died very suddenly in the last week. He was in his 40s. He had children. And it was, uh, it's been very devastating for the last few days because, you know, Kelly, when somebody dies that young, uh, it, it's one of those moments where you just stop and wonder about the meaning of life kind of things. So uh, our heart goes out to the, uh, the family there and, and to, the, to Citadel and the family uh, that is uh, Citadel, a big player on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, and for it to be on set so suddenly like that is just so awful. Uh, Bob, I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. And our condolences okay. do go out to Rusty's family today. Russell Lyle Hewitt Jr. passed away at the age of 40 last week. He had been diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia just days before. Rusty leaves behind his wife, Candace, and his three kids, Grace, Hardy, and Jacqueline. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange, and let's get a check on the markets, which have turned their, changed their colors, shall we say, in the past hour or so, and turned lower. That's what we see right now with the Dow down 180 points. Uh, we were up about 300 some at the high, so this is a pretty big swing. It's a three-quarter percent decline for the blue chips, half a percent for the S&P, and the Nasdaq is back lower again by two-tenths of a percent. Now, in terms of the drivers for that, well, Apple came out about an hour ago and announced it will be reclosing stores in some states, fourth uh, southern states to be exact. You saw that take the sales out of the market and we continued to kind of churn around down here. Oil also turned lower and the 10-year Treasury yield started slipping. Here's the sectors kind of give you a feel for that. The industrials, uh, the weakest today, are down 1.3 percent. So again, that kind of more cyclically oriented part of the market, not taking the news too well. Healthcare, though, a stalwart, uh, up about a quarter of 1 percent today. It's the only sector higher right now. Uh, within the Dow, by the way, Walgreens, Boots, United Health are the leaders. Raytheon and Boeing are the biggest laggards today. So there's Boeing down about 2 percent. Restaurants are starting to reopen across the country following the COVID shutdown, but the process comes with a ton of challenges. Gran Electrica, which is a modern Mexican restaurant in Napa Valley, found the health and economic costs too high and decided to close their dining room again. Joining me now to discuss his experience is Tamar Hamawi. He's the owner of Gran Electrica. And Tamar, welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be here. We were very interested in your story as what it tells us about restaurants in particular suffering from this pandemic, Tamar. You could reopen. You did reopen. Why did you decide to close the dining room again? So we really gave it a shot. You know, we gave it a week. Um, we hired back our team. We got all of our systems in place, all of our health and safety protocols to make sure that we were compliant with um, all the COVID-19 regulations. And basically what we found was... <clears throat> Not only is it not really feasible for restaurants to operate at 50% capacity, but um, we found that as, with regards to our staff, uh, there really was just no way to 100% protect them. Um, obviously, guests were required to wear masks on entry, but as soon as they would sit down to eat, obviously those masks would come off and they would stay off for the entirety of the meal. And so our staff was sort of forced to be in a position where they were much more exposed um, to the virus than they wanted to be. Are you going to be able to stay in business? 
You know, that remains to be seen. I think every restaurant's doing what they can to survive right now. So, um, you know, right now we're, we're still going to operate as normal with our takeout model. Um, it's obviously not going to sustain us long term, but for now it kind of keeps us afloat. It's actually been reasonably successful for us and, and people are loving what we're doing from a takeout perspective. Um, ideally, we're just hoping that things change, uh, that restrictions are lifted soon and we can kind of get back to a normal operation. Did you ask for or receive any of the funds from the PPP? We did. We, um, we applied for the PPP loan basically on the day that they were accepting applications. Um, like many small businesses, we missed out on funding on that first round. Um, it did become apparent that a lot of big corporations got all that money on the first go round. So with the second go round of funding, we were able to secure a PPP loan. But, um, you know, with that comes a whole range of issues as well. And I'm sure many restaurants feel the same way, that the guidelines um, surrounding that PPP loan are really quite challenging. Um, for a long time, we only had about eight weeks to use those funds. <clears throat> and uh, we had to use those funds specifically in a 75% ratio um, to payroll, 25% to rent and utilities. So for many, well, for the first couple of months of the shutdown, every restaurant in the country was trying to figure out how they can use this money effectively um, to get forgiveness on the loan with a restaurant that's not open. Fortunately, those guidelines were changed only just in the last few weeks. And so we now have an extension to use the loan and it sort of makes it much more of a feasible situation. Sure. So I want to go back to one of the things you said, which is that you can't 100% protect your employees. Um, would you be able to stay open uh, knowing that risk or are you concerned about liability or do you just not feel comfortable kind of being responsible uh, for people getting sick? Yeah, it's really the latter. I mean, we, you know, we basically encouraged our staff to come back to work when they were all on unemployment benefits. Um, as you know, there has been an additional sort of economic impact payment as part of those unemployment benefits. So, there really was no great incentive to come back to work because they were all making such good money on unemployment. Having said that, to their credit, they did want to come back to work. They saw the bigger picture and they really wanted to be a part of bringing Grand Electrica back into business. Um, so with that said, they came back to work. You know, they were all wearing masks. We had a lot of sort of health and safety protocols in place, but they just felt that you know, with staff, uh, with guests not wearing their masks, that they were fully exposed to the virus throughout the entirety of their shift. And they just didn't feel comfortable. And personally, I don't, I don't really blame them. You know, some of them have, live with their grandparents, you know, they live with high risk individuals. So it really was a situation that we just didn't feel uh, that it was, it was really a, a great position to put them in. Yeah. And I wonder to some extent when those payments end, uh, what people will do, will they feel as though they have no choice but to you know, be forced to come back to work? And that's a whole other complication. I'm curious in the meantime, you know, you mentioned you do a big takeout business. You're in Napa Valley. Could you have outdoor dining? You know, could you just move to a parking lot or a, a field or something like that for, for a few months? Yeah, that's a good question. We actually have a fairly generous patio here at the restaurant. So we do have an outdoor dining space, but with the 50% capacity limits, it did really, you know, cut that space down considerably. Um, having said that, it is, a, it is a really nice place to dine. So given our situation, we've, we've tried to think of other ways that we can try and offer some kind of dine-in service, but in a much more sort of controlled environment. 
So we're actually doing what we call our PPPs, which are our private patio parties. And so we're offering guests the opportunity to basically get a, a group of, of their family or close friends, people that they feel comfortable with, people that, that they can get tested before they come and, and have this event. And they can basically take over the patio to themselves. They'll pre-order, um, they'll prepay for their food. And so it really enables us to kind of have a very controlled environment where there's a lot less interaction between staff and customers. That's fascinating. I, my final question, Tamara, is where do you think you're going to be a year from now? That's a great question. We're really only taking it a couple of weeks at a time. I mean, things are, as you know, so volatile in this country right now. So um, we're just doing what we can to keep things afloat. Um, I'm hoping that in a year's time, things will be somewhat back to normal and we can just get back to doing what we do best. Well, we all hope that. Uh, in the meantime, do keep us posted. Uh, you're a good template for what is going to happen to the rest of the industry. Tamara, thanks for joining me. Tamara so Hamoui is the owner of Gran Electrica. Ahead, follow the yellow brick road. Morgan Stanley says investors should do that right now. They see higher stock prices despite everything we've just been discussing. Chief strategist Mike Wilson joins me to explain. Plus, in his testimony earlier this week, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said that Nevada is ground zero when it comes to COVID. Why Congress will need to deliver more fiscal aid. We'll speak with Congressman Stephen Horsford about the state's plan for the path forward and the progress of the Las Vegas reopening. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. The major averages tumbled into the red on reports today that Apple is reclosing stores in Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Arizona. Stocks have recovered from the initial shock. It seems strategists on the street were starting to turn bullish on the rest of the year. But is what we heard from Apple the first sign that the bears are out? Joining me now is Mike Wilson, chief investment officer and chief U.S. equity strategist at Morgan Stanley. Mike, it's good to have you. Um, you know, not to get too granular about the Apple news today, but I mean, this encapsulates the concern for the market overall. You're still pretty bullish, though. Why? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Um, look, I think this is going to continue until it's you know crystal clear that we are reopening in a way where, you know, there aren't going to be setbacks. But look, until we have a vaccine or until we get herd immunity or there's a belief that we have herd immunity and you know the virus has been eradicated, there's going to be moments of doubt. And, I mean, look, Apple's probably doing the right thing, right? And, and that's what we think is going to happen. There's going to be pocket lockdowns, you know, sort of spotty lockdowns where maybe there's uh, a spike in cases. But a national lockdown like we experienced in, you know, for the last couple of months, that is probably pretty unlikely. And that's what the market would be really concerned about. So we think you know, the virus itself is a serious health issue still. But from an economic standpoint, the worst is behind us, and we think the market is trying to look forward and ultimately – these will be buying opportunities. Uh, the virus scares will be buying opportunities as far as we're concerned. Okay, so the S&P is around 3101 as we're talking. You just raised your price target to 3350 from 3000. What is that predicated on? Yeah, so it's basically predicated on the recovery. So we've had the multiple expansion, as you typically get when you go uh, into a recession, right? The earnings get cut, and you're at trough earnings. So the market knows that. That's why we're trading expensively. You know, a lot of people are saying the market's way ahead of itself. Well, the market is looking forward and saying, well, wait a minute. Uh, next 12-month earnings forecasts have probably troughed, and we think they have. And over the next uh, 12 months, as we roll forward, those estimates are going to go up by probably 15% or so, and then the multiple will come down. And so it's about 10% upside. What do you say, and this is a little bit bigger discussion, but I'm sure it comes up all the time, when people say, Mike, 
You know, this is a Wall Street disconnect from Main Street. This is all just the Fed liquidity and it's artificial and doesn't reflect reality. I mean, what do you what's your response to that? Well, I mean, it, but it is reality. I mean, the, the reality is, is that the Fed is doing these things. And the reality is that Congress is spending a lot of money on the fiscal stimulus. I mean, there's nothing phony about that. And those have real implications for the economy and, you know, earnings next year and valuations, right? Because the Fed's intervention has effectively truncated this recession for the credit markets, which means companies have, you know, virtually unlimited access to capital markets, which is helpful, um, and they're keeping interest rates lower, which is obviously a you know benefit for valuation. So while I mean, I, you know, I, I would argue strongly against the idea that the market is disconnected. It's just basically taking the inputs that are in front of us and discounting them. Hmm. So final question, Mike, is are you concerned or do you think it could happen that this starts to make, you know, kind of get a frothy aspect to it? I mean, we saw obviously a lot of the retail interest that drove individual stocks to some pretty eye-popping levels. What about that as an effect on the market overall? Yeah, I think that's a, I mean, that's a legitimate concern. We are seeing pockets of speculative activity, and some of that will have to be taken out, and some of that has been taken out. The last week, as you know, we had a pretty nasty correction last week on mm-hmm. Thursday, and you know, some of those, those stocks that got a little frothy did get, they did get hit. Uh, but I do want to make a, a comment with respect to the retail community. I mean, we're not seeing that kind of speculative behavior in our network. I mean, we're a pretty sizable uh, wealth management firm of $2.5 trillion. And um, so we're, we haven't seen, you know, any kind of euphoria uh, on this rally yet. I mean, I think that could be to come. It's another reason to think that later, as the virus is contained or we have a vaccine, um, I think there's actually more retail money that could come in later in the year. But I, I appreciate your comment about some of these pockets of speculation, and we would be careful about chasing some of those types of stocks for sure. And as you've said, not something you're really picking up on at your firm anyhow. Mike, good to have you. Thank you, sir. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Mike Wilson, chief U.S. equity strategist at Morgan Stanley. 33.50, he says, for the S&P. Coming up, Nevada has been hit hard by the coronavirus with a ballooning deficit and the highest unemployment rate in the country. We're going to speak with the state's congressman about the path forward for reopening and for Las Vegas. And on this Juneteenth, we take a look at how the battleground states view one of the key issues for the black community as we approach the 2020 presidential election. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back. we got a news alert on the cruise industry. Seema Modi has the details. Seema? Kelly, some breaking news here. Cruise Lines International Association, the trade body that represents the cruise lines, announcing the suspension of cruising from U.S. ports till mid-September, September 15th. Now, that's further delaying when these ships will return to sea, and that's going to hit all three publicly traded cruise lines, Carnival, Royal Caribbean, and Norwegian Cruise Line. Both Carnival and Royal were aiming to resume some cruises starting August 1st. August 1st, just a couple days ago, Norwegian Cruise Line pushed its start date to October 1st. A spokesperson for CLIA uh, says it is increasingly clear that more time will be needed to resolve barriers to resumption in the United States and that the additional time will allow them to consult with the CDC. Remember, Kelly, this is an industry that has come to a halt since mid-March. The CDC enacted that no-sale order that is expected to expire on July 24th, but it's really been an uphill battle for the 
the cruise lines to uh, get these negotiations started with the CDC and outline the changes that need to happen in this post-COVID world, including how to do social distancing on board, what capacity can they operate at, and other procedures like medical evacuations and isolation techniques all have been on the table, have yet to be uh, fully finalized and addressed. And that's why you're seeing these cruise lines uh, once again delaying sailings now till the fall, which uh, you got you to say will hurt these cruise operators. They're already burning a lot of cash. Carnival just yesterday saying it's burning around $650 million a month. Kelly. Wow, and they're all extending their losses towards session lows with declines about 55 to 6%. Seema, thanks for bringing that to us. Seema Modi with the latest there. As we've mentioned, today is Juneteenth, a holiday marking the end of slavery in 1865. As the protests over George Floyd's recent death continue, more than a third of swing state voters ranked racism as one of the biggest problems in the U.S. Elon Moy joins me now to break down how America feels about race and what it could mean for the presidential election. Elon? Well, Kelly, in our exclusive CNBC survey with Change Research across six battleground states, racism was one of the top three issues that voters say that they care about heading into the presidential election. It ranked behind the economy and health care, but interestingly, it ranked above the coronavirus. 38 percent of voters said they see racism as a problem. Only 30 percent of voters say that they are worried about the virus. Now, there is a political divide over this issue. Racism is the most important problem for Democrats. Republicans see as actually the least most important problem. But the real dynamic to watch here is the sentiment among certain subgroups. Black voters say racism is a priority as expected, but also college-educated women and young people. They pointed to racism as a problem more frequently in our survey than any other issue. So that could create some challenges for President Trump come November, Kelly, especially since the survey also shows that most voters don't approve of the way that he's handled the recent episodes of police violence and discrimination. Back over to you. All right, Elon, thank you very much. For more on the path forward for the country, I'm now joined by Representative Stephen Horsford from Nevada. Congressman, welcome. Thank you, Kelly. Good to be on. What do you think about the increasing kind of days off and, and marking of Juneteenth across the country? Well, I join uh, with my colleague, uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, uh, and others in calling for a federally ho- federal holiday recognizing Juneteenth. Uh, This is something that uh, we should have done a long time ago. Uh, This is uh, a solemn day for many uh, because we still have not lived up to the ideals of what it really means to be free in this country based on the systemic racism that exists, not just among our police departments, but in other systems like education, healthcare, the workforce, uh, and so many other areas. And you are one of the sponsors, or you introduced the Justice and Policing Act. Uh, Where are we in that process on this legislation right now? Well, that measure, the Justice in Policing Act, which has been named after George Floyd, uh, has actually passed the House Judiciary Committee, and it is scheduled to come up for a vote uh, by the full House of Representatives uh, next Thursday, is my understanding. Um, And so before the end of June, that legislation will move. Uh, It's a very important bill that bans chokeholds, it bans no-knock warrants as it pertains to drug uh, charges. Uh, It would uh, end uh, qualified immunity. Uh, It would really change the way uh, we handle policing in this country 
Uh, I'm proud to be a sponsor of the bill, and I look forward to its passage in the House and urge my colleagues in the Senate to work with us on this legislation uh, in this important time of our of our country. Yeah, of course, one of the other big issues right now is unemployment. I want to pivot to the economy, especially in your state. Nevada has the highest unemployment rate right now at about 28 percent. And this week, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said Nevada is ground zero in explaining why more federal stimulus is needed. Here's uh, exactly what the chair said. There's going to be a lot of people going back to work in, in coming months. But there are going to be a lot of people who can't because, you know, if they work in, in Nevada, for example, as we were just discussing in, in the travel and entertainment industry, this aren't going to be jobs. So it's going to be a while. I think um, some form of support for those people going forward, in my view, is likely to be appropriate. What do you think that support, what form could that support take, Congressman? Well, I completely agree with the Fed uh, chairman, and I would call on my Senate colleagues again to join with the House of Representatives and pass the HEROES Act, which provides not just the relief to state and local government, which is especially important in a state like Nevada with high unemployment, and to our local counties and cities that are also on the front lines, but it would also provide targeted relief, additional unemployment insurance, COBRA health care payments, direct cash payments uh, to individuals who still are struggling to get back to work, uh, as well as more relief uh, to small businesses. The chairman is actually uh, very right, and there are more than 500,000 Nevadans, nearly a 30% unemployment rate. It's the highest of any other state uh, in the country related to unemployment. And that doesn't include the full numbers of those that were related to the gig economy, or independent contractors who are still working to get their benefits through unemployment. Yeah, and I was going to ask if there's more that the state could do as this becomes more of a localized issue. Like you said, your state has hit the hardest, but then I'm looking at the state budget numbers and they're pretty bleak. It looks like they could lose about a fifth of the budget. And you have to wonder what the long-lasting implications of that will be, higher taxes, fewer services. Well, First, I came before serving in Congress, I served in the state Senate and I was the majority leader during 2009 when we experienced the worst uh, budget in our state's history during that time in that recession. Uh, And what I know now as a member of Congress is that we need federal action. The HEROES Act would actually provide Nevada $8.6 billion of funding to our state and local governments in order to provide those essential services. The last thing we need to do is to cause more unemployment among our first responders, among educators, among caseworkers, among nurses, many of whom are uh, employed by state and local governments. So again, I'm calling on Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, and all Senate senators to join with the House of Representatives, bring up the vote on the HEROES Act, allow us to provide this relief to state and local governments Uh, And let's not um, delay this any further. People are counting on Congress to do its job, um, and it's time for the Senate to act. Congressman Horsford, thanks for your time today and for joining us. Thank you. That's Representative Stephen Horsford of Nevada. Still ahead, take a look at this video. Some of these people waited in line for 10 hours to get answers about their unemployment benefits, and we'll have the full details next.
Welcome back. Video showing a huge line of people snaking through a parking lot in Kentucky has gotten huge headlines this week. Rahel Solomon is here with the details on why this is happening. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. So the video in these COVID times is perhaps shocking enough, but when you learn why all these people are waiting, that's the real shocker. In Frankfort, Kentucky, look at this line. People are waiting up to eight to ten hours for help processing their unemployment benefits. As we can see in the video, some have lawn chairs, others passing the time on the phone. Some people are wearing masks. Some are not. And those who say they do not arrive by 9 a.m., well, they are being turned away by state troopers. But people there say this is what it has come down to when you have successfully tried to apply or reach someone online or via the phone. There's got to be somebody that could have said, hey, this is what's going on. And it's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, after 90 days, you can't tell me that somebody can't help me. And Kelly, Kentucky officials tell us, well, they've processed more than 90% of all eligible claims and paid out more than $2.5 billion. We should also point out, in yesterday's report, in yesterday's jobs report, Kentucky reported and recorded a decline in claims. So, Kelly, two very different stories coming out of Kentucky right now. And we should also say that we spoke to our affiliate, our NBC affiliate in Lexington, and they say that line today, Kelly, just as long. Why couldn't they do it online? Well, the site was crashing, and that's a story that we've covered as well here on yeah. The Exchange, that a lot of these tech sites, a lot of these IT systems are not in place for the demand that we're now seeing. Wow, so they had no other choice. That is crazy. Rahel, we appreciate it. Rahel Solomon, uh, that does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.